0: Psalm chapter 14, the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 14. While we're doing that, just want to um, acknowledge uh, the presence of a dear friend of mine, Derek and Debbie Vanderbilt. Uh, Derek is pastor in the, in the uh, URC in Hawaii uh, and um, just visiting his children back here. But it's great to see you, uh, brother and, um, and Debbie. De- Derek and I were classmates at Westminster, and uh, Derek's been a huge blessing in my life. Let's. uh, Derek, in fact, just told me he's just preached Psalm 14, but he didn't tell me that this week, and uh, so I'm a little sore at him. But that's all right. Psalm 14, Psalm of David. Let's give our attention to God's word. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers? Let Israel be glad. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God in heaven, you are the author of these words through the inspiration of David, your servant. We thank you, Father, that through your word you teach us what is true. And so we ask that tonight your Holy Spirit again would help us to hear and receive and believe and that tonight we would love Jesus for his great love for fools. And Father, we pray that tonight you would do your work, the only work, the work that only you can do. And we give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 14, one of David's psalms, written thousands of years ago, is a wonderful contemporary analysis of the world that we live in. Uh, If you would ask, why is the world the way that it is? Psalm 14 has a tremendous answer. Why is the world the way that it is? We get used to it, don't we? We just take it for granted that the newspapers are going to read what they read. The headlines are going to be about crime and about war. We're going to read about corruption and greed and perversity and hatred and lies. Why? Why is the world the way it is? Why are there organizations like ISIS, which kills its thousands, and Planned Parenthood, which kills its millions? Why is there a multi-billion dollar pornography industry in this country? Why do those things exist? And Psalm 14 has an answer. The world is the way that it is because sinful men and women, by virtue of their sinful nature, live without regard to God. They say in their heart there is no God. So tonight we're going to look then at the fool and his declaration. And secondly, we'll look at the Lord's investigation and thirdly, the psalmist's expectation. David begins by introducing to us a fool, the fool. In biblical terms, uh, the fool is not someone who is silly as much as someone who is spiritually deluded, someone who is morally deviant, someone who is intentionally uh, set against the person and and the ways of God. And this person, the fool, says in his heart, he has a conversation within himself, At the deepest level of who he is, he has a conversation and a discourse with himself. Plumer says, the discourse is not the atheism of understanding, but the atheism of the heart. The heart, of course, is the wellspring of life, the Bible says. It's at the core of a person. It's the seat of your desiring and your choosing. Your deepest commitments are there. Your deepest convictions are there. And you will live out of those convictions and commitments. People... Are what they are, and they do what they do because of the heart within them. Remember, I believe it was Paul trip or Ted trip, one of the two. Um, but talking about uh, a drunk, uh, an uncle who was drunk and and at a family gathering and saying perverse things, and his mother uh, grabs little uh, Ted and uh, takes him out of the house and just says, "I want you to remember, nothing came out of his mouth that wasn't already there in his heart." We are what we are and do what we do because of the heart that is within us. And the fool has within his heart this deep commitment and conviction there is no God. The Hebrew word used here for God is the word Elohim. It's the name of God that you read if you would open your Hebrew Bible and go to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, Elohim created heaven and earth. It is the name of God as creator God, the God who sustains and rules, the God who uh, reigns as judge. That is the God that the fool denies. There is no God. Now, in the Hebrew, again, you don't have the words there is. It, It just says the fool says in his heart, no God, no Elohim. It's his profession of faith. It is his deepest conviction. There is no creator of heaven and earth. There is no one who stands over me, no one who has placed me in this world, made me in his image. There is no Elohim to whom I must give an account at the end of my life. No God who will hold me uh, to count. And, and, and that is both their conviction, their commitment, it's their wish. Let there be no God. They don't want there to be a God. Now the folly of such a statement is glaringly evident in light of the fact that God has revealed himself so magnificently in the things that he's made. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling, they're shouting the glory of God. Have you you had your eyes open this past week? Are you you seeing the sunsets? Do you you see the beauty? Do you see the, the glory of God? Maybe if you've gone on vacation and you've traveled and you've marveled at how creation is telling and proclaiming the glory of God day after day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no place where their language is not heard. God's creation is shouting the truth of his being and his presence. But the fool says, in light of all of that information, no God, no Elohim. It all just happened. Out of nothing, everything, and we're not sure how it happened. Some of the brightest men will say maybe uh, there are Martians or aliens who, who seeded um, the first um, matter, the first molecules. Of course, then you just back up the question, where did the aliens come from? It doesn't really matter. As long as there's not an Elohim, they'll settle for any answer. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that, the, that wicked, unrighteous men suppress the truth for what can be known about God it's plain to them because God has shown it to them. God, God has been active in revealing himself. He's, he's held out the truth of his person, his, his eternal power and divine nature. And they are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that people are without excuse. And yet they say, no, Elohim, made in his image, and the Bible says, furthermore, that God has placed eternity into the heart of men so that when people say there is no God, there is no God to whom I am accountable, they are speaking against what their conscience knows to be true. There is no evolutionary rationale for guilt. And yet every person experiences it. And yet in spite of all the evidence that's around us and the evidence within us, God, this God-given knowledge, this God-given revelation, the fool continues to insist, no God. The prophet Isaiah in chapter twenty-nine just highlights the, the the folly of this, the ridiculous nature of this. And in Isaiah twenty nine, verse fifteen, Ah, you hide deep from the Lord your counsel, and whose deeds are in the dark, and who says, Who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should made of its maker. He did not make me. Can you just imagine this little pot that's just been created, and it's it's sitting there, and the the artist, the author, the the potter is standing there with the clay still on his fingers, and and the pot uh, points to him and says, He didn't make me. Isaiah 29 says that's what people do. The thing made says of its maker. There's no God. There's no Elohim. Now, why would, a, why would a, a person insist on this? What's the motive? Have people come to this consideration through careful analysis of the salient facts? No, the truth is that uh, people come to this conviction because of desire, They don't want there to be an Elohim, a creator, God, maker of heaven and earth, to whom I will have to give an account on the last day. There's a wonderful frank uh, admission of this. Thomas Nagel is a philosophy professor in New York University. Wrote a book entitled The Last Word, 1997. And he writes this, he says, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now sometimes you just got to stand and applaud that kind of honesty. That's exactly right. That's, that's a human heart by virtue of its sinful nature. I don't want it to be that way. Nagel is what you would call a hopeful atheist. He, doesn't, uh, he hopes there is no God because he doesn't like the ramifications of there being a God. And most new atheists, uh, if you think of Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, Dawkins... They admit that they cannot prove there is no God. They just ardently desire there not to be a God and then look for reasons to support that desire. Now the question, of course, to ask is, why would you want a world like that? Why would, what drives Nagel to say this? Why would you prefer a meaningless world? Because that's the other option. If there is no God, if there's no creator, no maker, then there is no meaning And yet these men acknowledge that to be true and still insist that they would prefer that world. Why would you do that? Why would you prefer a world that exists by evolutionary accident? Aldous Huxley, a a philosopher and author, something about philosophy here. But um, he's a a philosopher and author who passed away in 1963. uh, Incidentally, the very same day as C.S. Lewis and JFK. Can you imagine the three of them standing before the throne on the same day? But this is what Huxley says. I had motive for not wanting the world to have meaning. And consequently, I assumed that it had none and then was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for my assumption. And then he says this. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. In other words, Uh, he's saying that the the, the guy who posits there is no God is not dealing with um, a metaphysical question, is there actually objectively such a being as God? It's not a metaphysical objective issue for him as much as as it is this. He says he's concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. You see that? The main concern isn't the metaphysical question, it's the moral question. Is there someone who exists who has the right to call me to account? And Huxley says, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Again, wonderfully honest. End of the day, he was not nearly as concerned about the metaphysical possibility of there being a God, a Elohim, maker of heaven and earth. End of the day, what he was most concerned about is that there was no one who was going to call him to account for who he went to bed with. And we live in a day where that is absolutely what's going on. Where the sexual revolution is uh, our claim to independence and liberation. We will determine our own uh, moral principles. Uh, we will function uh, as though we have the right to simply do what we believe uh, we ought to be allowed to do. And who's to say otherwise? And so you see, since the fool would rather there not be a being who can call our actions evil, since we would. since the fool would rather there not be a God who can call us to account, he convinces himself there is no such thing. Interestingly, religious or spiritual people can be just as foolish as the most ardent atheist. David is not speaking here simply about atheists. Many of the fools in the Bible were people who would profess to believe in God. In the world that we live in, there are many people who profess to be spiritual and who profess to believe in God. They may even believe in a plethora of gods, but they do not believe in Elohim. They believe in a God that, is, that they feel comfortable with, a God who affirms them, a God who's not so shook up about sexual morality, a God who is willing to serve them when they, when they feel that they need that service, and a God who's willing to leave them alone when they would like to go their own way. There is no God who's made them in their image, a God that deserves their worship and obedience and will hold them to account. No Elohim. And of course, you can be a, a professing Christian, and be a fool. You can profess biblical faith and be a fool. You can know your catechism frontwards and backwards. You can be convinced and, and, and convince people that you are a member in good standing. But if, if we could open this person up down and see the root of their being at the source of their willing and desiring the things that they dream about, we would find plenty of Uh, ambitions and hungers and passions and ideas and commitments and fears, but no Elohim. No desire for and delight in and concern for Elohim, God, the creator. My wife and I saw, uh, I think on vacation, um, the Pixar movie, uh, uh, Inside Out. It's fascinating. I think one of Pixar's best. And it's about what goes on inside the head of an 11-year-old girl, which I have to admit is a fascinating topic. <laughs> and uh, in the movie, you—you you, uh, so you, you're literally inside Riley's head, and inside her heart, really—the seat of her emotions. What makes Riley Riley? Her convictions, her experiences. And interestingly, the, they portray the things that form Riley, the things that make Riley Riley. They call these various islands. And I'm not spoiling anything here by telling you this, but there's islands of personality. And so you have the island of family, you have the island of honesty, the island of hockey, the island of friendship, and Goofball Island. So these are all islands. Family island, honesty island. So the morality, the the, the love of sports, the uh, delight in friends, and then just this goofiness. And so these are the islands that make Riley, Riley. Do you know what isn't there? Elohim Island. There's no God. Riley is a perfect little American atheist. Just a sweet little kid who lives her life with no reference to God. At all. That's what the the psalmist is talking about. What's the fruit of this profession, this conviction? What are the fruits of the fool's commitment? Well, David says they are corrupt the hebrew word s- signifies uh, something that's gone sour something that's rancid something that's putrid is no longer of any use it stinks there's a there's something fundamentally wrong with it and what david is saying is that the the disposition the fundamental disposition of the sinful human heart is that it's gone wrong it's putrid it's defiled and because the heart is the wellspring of life what's going to come out of that putrid life that putrid heart are putrid acts it's all they are corrupt and out of that corruption come abominable deeds you see the problem with humanity isn't that people do bad things the fundamental problem with humanity is that people are by nature bad people are by nature corrupt the heart is wrong and because the heart is wrong it is inevitable that out of that wrong heart come corrupt, abominable things. And the, the word, again, abominable, it means, uh, it speaks of things that desecrate, things that defile and violate, things that are inherently wrong, inherently evil, acts of violence against God and against His good creation. We've had such a devastating illustration of this in the last week or so with the incalculable evil of planned parenthood. And here you, here you have women, maybe some of the mothers, made in the image of God, calmly discussing how they murder babies in the womb and they do it carefully so they can preserve certain body parts which they then sell for profit. So they, they violate the sanctity of that womb and the the sanctity of that life and desecrate that body made in God's image so that they can sell the parts for profit. One of the ladies said, I want a Lamborghini. One writer has said, this is our Auschwitz. You ever wonder how people in Germany could just stand by as Jews were being dragged away and burned? This is our Auschwitz. And we have political leaders and members of the media committed to doing whatever they can to support and defend this sort of vile organization. And the question, of course, is how do we get here? Well, we got here because people say there is no God. There is no Elohim. A lady who is parsing body parts and getting them ready for sale and shipping them off. No Elohim. But the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. No matter you see what the fool says in his heart, no matter how convinced the fool is that there is no God, there's no Elohim, he's there. He's in his heaven. He's never once taken his eyes off the world. He sees. He knows everything. And he's looking to see if there are any who understand. Are there any who get it? Are there any of these creatures made in my image? Any of the children of men? Do they understand? Do they understand who they are? Do they understand why they exist? Do they understand their purpose? Are there any who seek after God? Any who call upon the name of the Lord. He's, he's looking among all the children of men. And the devastating answer comes back. There is none. There, no one does. No one, no one is seeking for God. They're seeking for sex and money and reputation and comfort and security. They seek careers and music and sports and movies. But not Elohim. Not God, the maker of every gift. The maker of their own body the one who's ordained their days. David says they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You know how many people there are in the world? And not one by nature inherently seeks after God. None understand, not a single one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, like sheep, have gone astray. Not even one person does good. Now, people will protest this, and they'll say, well, how can you say that? Look at all the the notable, worthwhile accomplishments that unbelievers have made. And of course that's true. Well, People made in God's image can do amazing things, can do honorable things, valuable things, things worthy of, of, of praise. Of course that's true. The point is that no one, by virtue of their fallen human nature, lives as God originally intended. No one lives according to God's design. No one loves the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength. No one lives as they were uh, intended to live, in God's presence, for God's glory, seeking God's face, delighting in God's purposes. Even the most moral and noble unbeliever, you see, lives with no Elohim written across his life. In fact, oftentimes, the most moral or noble unbeliever uses his morality as proof that he has no need for Elohim. His own morality is defiance. How did this happen? Well, the psalmist says they've all turned aside, turned away from God. It's a train that has gone crashing off the track, and of course, the train wasn't made to work that way. And yet people go plowing off the track one after another all have turned aside all have gone astray turned away from the living God and then utterly missing the purpose for which they've created and have become vehicles of great destruction. See this is the dilemma the great dilemma of humanity isn't it this is this is the core truth of the human race. It's man's great predicament as well as his great perversion. He was made by God, for God, to live with God, but in his heart of hearts, he denies God. Refuses to accept the truth and the reality of the one who made him and becomes an an ignorant fool, a destructive fool. Have they no knowledge, all evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? Have they no knowledge? Don't they understand? Don't they see? People are wise and learned about so many things. It's astonishing what people know. It's amazing what they can do. But Utterly ignorant when it comes to God. Plumer in his commentary says this. Many unregenerate men make great proficiency in science, in literature, in the arts of war and peace, in government and civilization, but in religious matters, in the affairs of his soul, every wicked man defies every maxim of sound wisdom and every dictate of divine knowledge. Sin is as great a madness as it is a wickedness. No knowledge, no knowledge. You ever tried to have a conversation with people about spiritual things who who are committed to the principle of no Elohim? You've never heard such foolishness as people talking about spiritual truth when they're committed to no God. And it is it is all human nature by virtue of Adam and Eve. No one, no one does better. They eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord. They live their life, they enjoy God's gifts, and they do enjoy God's gifts, but they do not honor Him as God, nor do they give thanks to Him. That's always struck me in Romans chapter 1 The, the pure evil of ingratitude, the absolute perversity. You know, it's easy for us to see the perversity of sexual sin. We think about a homosexual lifestyle and there's something that just turns you because it just, it just seems so sick and perverse and yet our ingratitude doesn't seem so bad. Do you realize how sick it is? How perverse it is that you receive day after day after day after day after day the kindness of God, the goodness of God, the blessings of God, the gifts of God, everyone purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and you don't say thank you? You fathom how sick that is? How wicked it is? They don't call upon the name of the Lord. They don't worship him. No Elohim, you see? No Elohim. No God. No God to whom I owe my life. No God who has the right to tell me how to live. No God. That I will bow down to. But David talks about a day of revealing and a day of reversal. Verse 5 and 6. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor. But the Lord is his refuge. You see there's this, there's this great contest going on. Between, between the fool and the people of God. And David looks forward and he sees a day when suddenly the, the, the fool is going to be in great terror. As he realizes there is a God. And this God is with the Righteous when suddenly the, the scales are taken away from his eyes, when the sky suddenly opens up, and the reality of God is revealed, the Son of Man descends on the clouds of heaven. And then suddenly, as, as, as the fool, all of his life saying, there is no God, no Elohim. And suddenly his entire Reality is taken up with the glory of the Son of Man, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the reality of God. Revelation 6.15 talks about that day. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, all your elite, and everyone, slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who can stand the day of the wrath of God? No one. As the profession of no Elohim gives way to cries for mountains to fall on them to cover them to hide them from Elohim it's a it's a it's a gripping psalm incredible analysis of the reality of the world in which we live it tells us the reason things are the way they are it just shows us such clearly the profound predicament of humanity but it doesn't end there it ends with an expectation Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Notice he doesn't say if the Lord restores the the fortunes of his people. If only God would do something. That isn't his prayer. That isn't what he says. It's that it would happen when it happens. Then let let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. As David surveys the world, he sees all the corruption, all the perversion, all the pollution out there and in here. He knows himself. But as he sees all the abominable acts of men who defy God and desecrate his creation, he longs for it to come to an end. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Don't you long, don't you hunger for a world where things aren't right? Where babies aren't murdered for convenience sake? Where people don't hate and lie and lust and steal and beat down, right, brothers and sisters, just a world where it's right, where God is honored, where God is delighted. Can you imagine a new heaven and a new earth where where the entire creation around you and every person that you see is full of the glory of God and delights in the knowledge of the Lord? It's astounding. That's what David hungers for. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Zion. Now, why would David expect this? It's clearly his expectation. Well, he expects it because God promised it. That's the beauty of it. God promises, way back in Genesis 3.15 when sin entered the world and the serpent had his devastating effect. God promised to send someone who's going to deal with the serpent. He's going to crush the serpent's head and every abominable act that flows from the serpent's presence and power is gonna be wiped away. It's a messianic prayer. It's a prayer that God would send that someone, that God would send the redeemer, the one who's going to make all things right and everything new. And David's prayer, of course, is answered even in a greater way than even he could have imagined. Jesus was the Savior, the Redeemer that came out of Zion, born in Bethlehem, born to a Jewish peasant girl named Mary. But Jesus was born not just to make Israel glad, but to make the nations glad. Jesus is God come to earth for the earth. He came to rescue this world, this humanity from our deadly folly. You see, Jesus did not come. Remember what he said? I didn't come for the good moral people of Israel. I didn't come for the righteous. He came for the fools of this world. He came for people like you and people like me, who by virtue of our sinful nature have denied the truth of God. You've done this. In your heart you've said, no Elohim. People who've lived at times as practical atheists, no matter what we profess with our mouth, the truth of our life has said something else. People who've gone astray, run off the rails, going our own way, refusing to live under the sovereign lordship of Elohim. People who've said and done abominable things, things that ought not to be done, violating God's holy law, desecrating his good creation. That's the truth about us. But the glory of the gospel, friends, is that God sent his son into this world, not to condemn the world, but that through him this world might be saved this world. The glory of the gospel is that at just the right time, God sent Jesus and Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Isn't that beautiful? Aren't you glad that's true? The glory of the gospel is that God so loved this world, this foolish, foolish, God-denying world. God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the son of God, gave up his life for people who said there is no God. And whose lives performed, uh, out out of that conviction erupted all the corruption and abominable deeds and thoughts. And Jesus went to the cross bearing that. That's the beauty of Psalm 14. That all this abomination, all this wickedness, Jesus Christ was willing to suffer and was able to satisfy the wrath of God, the justice of God in your place, in my place, that's the gospel. And the, quest, the question then comes out to you and I this evening, people who've heard the gospel, the question is, will we bow to King Jesus then in light of his goodness and his love? Will we bow To God, bow to Elohim, will we gladly own this God as our God, as our Savior and our Lord, and, and strive to live then fully cognizant of the reality of God, the glory of God? Will we get it? That's the question. Will we understand who we are and why we were made and what our purpose is and how we can be reconciled to this God and and, and to know that that is life and everything else is death. That is wisdom and everything else is foolishness. My prayer is, is that we would more and more understand that in Jesus Christ, Jesus has rescued us from the foolishness, the abject foolishness of sin and has brought us into the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our righteousness, and that through Jesus, Elohim has become even more precious. He's become Abba, Father. Let's, Let's live as people who, by the grace of God, delight in the truth of God. Amen. Oh God in heaven, I thank you so much that you answered David's prayer and that salvation has come out of Zion and that Jacob, weak, deceiving Jacob, can be glad and Israel can rejoice. But I thank you, Lord God, that the gospel has gone to the nations, has come to us, Gentiles, every one of us. How kind and gracious you are. And, oh God, I thank you that you open our eyes to see the truth about sin that it is foolishness it is a declaration of atheism that we deny the truth of the god who created us oh father i pray that you would help us to see that our minds and our mouths our bodies our thoughts it all belongs to you all made by you and and we owe you worship with our body with our time our gifts Father, I pray that the the reality of of God would rest and settle heavily and beautifully with the weight of glory upon your people, upon our life, upon our marriages, upon our homes, upon our work, upon our entertainment. That we would be people saturated with a sense of the glory of God. That we would live Gladly in this world that denies your existence under the banner of King Jesus as the people of God, not because of anything in us, but because of your marvelous grace. And Father, if there are any here tonight, again, who do not yet know that to be true of themselves, any here tonight who just have not confessed and bowed their knee and cried out for the grace that is available in Jesus, if Oh, Lord, I pray that they would respond to the invitation we began with. That great gospel invitation to turn and seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts and turn to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And Father, for all of us as we go into the week ahead, and may we go with joy. May we go, Lord, as your people with gladness, with confidence, with faith until the day we see our king face to face, and may that day come soon. And God's people said, amen. Let's respond.